please get your Bibles open. We're going to open up to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at a passage from verses 18 to 25. We're untwisting verse 25. We're going to untwist verse 25. We're going to put it back where it needs to be. So listen to this quote by Dr. J. Snell as I begin. I was called to the hospital to see a lady, a member of my church, who was dying with cancer. Unfortunately, neither she nor her family believed we can know that it is the will of God to heal us Christians. I did everything I knew to minister healing to her. Nothing seemed to get her any relief. Finally, the only scriptures left in my arsenal of healing weapons were Isaiah 53, 5 and 1 Peter 2, 24. So I started quoting them out loud. I confessed them over and over and over her frail little body. She recovered. She lived many years after this. When you have a difficult case, confess the simple statement, by his stripes I am healed. By his stripes I am healed. By his stripes I am healed. Quote them out loud till the healing comes. Now, is that the meaning of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24? Can we as Christians expect that there is a guarantee that we could be healed of all physical illnesses and diseases here in this life? Well, that's what we're going to untwist. And as we begin to look at today's scripture, scripture that we're going to untwist, I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul writes. Now, this is not yet 1 Peter. You've got to hear this, and we're going to take a really quick mini-trip on how this healing idea came about. Here's what Paul writes, Ephesians 4. You can see it on the screens. And he, that's Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Can I just quote, hold on for a second. I'm going to finish that quote in just a moment. What he's saying is, God, Jesus, has given the church these people, these gifted people, in order to help us mature. It kind of is a nod back to last week's twisted scripture from Matthew 18. This is the goal of discipleship, that we would mature. Now, I want you to hear the rest of this verse. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, and here we go, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Now, have you ever really thought through that phrase, every wind of doctrine? What is it? They are new ideas, new philosophical fads in the culture of belief, and they've been blowing since the church was established. They blew in these winds of doctrine. They were all the rage. People get all excited about them. But then they blow out and they leave empty, devastated, broken lives behind. 
and they take hold. Now listen, why do winds of doctrine take hold? Now listen to this. They take hold because there is in the heart of humanity a desire to find a way around God's authority as revealed in his word. So winds of doctrine blow in because people don't want to yield to God's word. They don't want to yield to God's authority. So they look for a way around it. And here comes another doctrinal fad and they get excited paul observed in athens in acts chapter 17 verse 21 now all the athenians and all and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new they would get excited this is another wind of doctrine blowing in and the people of athens would be this is really exciting here's a new way to unlock my potential. Here's a new way to live life my way. And then the wind would blow out. Now these winds, friends, they're always blowing. Now listen, I really want to tell you something. This is my aim. One of my, one of my top aims as a pastor, I know it's Pastor Matthews, Pastor Tim's, and our elders as well. Now listen, you've got to hear this. One of our top goals in this church is that you would so love the Word of God that you don't go a day without studying it. You don't go a day without reading it. You don't go a day without meditating on it. So that you are alert, so that you are aware when things come in, when these winds of doctrine blow, and there's something off with it. It might kind of sound okay, but you'll be able to see where it's off a little bit and where it's going to really be off a mile down the road. We want to build you up to be able to see these things. And you will not get there unless you're in the Word of God. So what began to emerge... In the late 1970s, was called the healing in the atonement. Now, everybody say that in your mind. The healing in the atonement. I'm going to explain a little bit what that is. It's centered on an interpretation of 1 Peter 2, verse 24. And by the way, this is just introduction. And Peter is quoting Isaiah 53, 5. So this healing in the atonement centered on this verse, he himself bore our sins. By the way, get in your Bibles. This is 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And what began to emerge from this wind of doctrine in the late 1970s, not too long ago, it's still blowing today, was that Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross not only for our sin, but as a guarantee to heal present physical sickness as well. This is a guarantee. And the reasoning is that physical illness and disease come originally from sin. There was no illness, there was no disease before sin fractured the relationship of Adam and Eve and God. So there was no illness before then. So the reasoning is that since they come from sin, and because Jesus died for our sins, here it is, you ready? If you have enough faith, it's always conditional on that, if you have enough faith, then you have the power to be healed from that sickness. Let me give you a quote 
from Kenneth Hagin. He's one of the, the most vocal early on proponents of this. Most word of faith teachers today have learned from the writings of Kenneth Hagin. He writes this, I am fully convinced, I would die saying it is so, that it is the plan of our Father God in his great love and in his great mercy that no believer should ever be sick. This is the movement called healing in the atonement. He writes on that every believer should live his full lifespan down here on this earth and that every believer should finally just fall asleep in Jesus. He says no believer should ever be sick. Now that's the application of by his stripes, usually they say, you have been healed. The way that I've seen this is in prayer, usually. We've had people in our, in our own church do this. That when we're praying for somebody's healing, when we're praying for someone who is sick, when we go to the hospital and we pray for them that God would restore them, the way that this is used wrongly is that there is a prayer over them and God, Father, we know in Jesus, by his stripes, we can claim your healing. We can claim this man's healing, this woman's healing. That's the way we use it, but is that really the way that Peter meant it to be used? And our goal today is to look again and find the context. Now listen, every single sermon in this series, we've had to go back and look at the context. I actually had people this last week, and I, I totally get this, I don't blame them. They said it's kind of frustrating to untwist these and find that it doesn't really mean the exciting thing that we thought it meant. And I get that. But listen, when you untwist it and you really see the mind of God, it's more exciting. It is more beautiful. It is richer. It is deeper. And we're going to find that again today. Three points I'm going to give you. Suffering is not always fair. That's point number one. Boy, I hope you lodge that in your mind. Suffering is not always fair. In fact, Tim Keller, whom I really respect, writes this, in the secular view, suffering is never seen as a meaningful part of life, but only as an interruption. That's how the world, he says, sees suffering. It's an interruption. How should the Christian see suffering? Well, number one, suffering is not always fair. Now, let's find this in the context. Look at verse 18. Let's all get in the Bible, 1 Peter 2. Servants, be subject to your masters. Now, listen, look up here for a moment. I'm going to give you the real word, slaves, because that's what the word means. So slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now that's really easy to find point number one, that suffering is not always fair when it's so clear. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now look at verse 18. Who's Paul speaking to? Now listen, I'm, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to drive it into you. You've got to get the context. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to slaves. And while slavery, now, now you, please hear this, because today, and I, I totally get how loaded and provocative that term is, slavery in Israel wasn't what you understand as slavery 
with Africans. So dissimilar. Slavery in Israel was a means to earn off your debt. So if you were in debt to somebody, then you became that person's slave until you earned off the money that you owed and then you were free again. So slavery in Israel was very, very different, but the world, the world, the, the sinfulness in the world corrupts that, and slavery then corrupted is a means to strip a person of dignity and freedom. Listen, of all people on the planet, Christians should be more vocal than anybody to prevent sex slavery, to prevent slavery of any kind, even slavery to a drug called an addiction. We ought to be the most vocal people because it's an aberration of what it means to love one another. It's not to be. Peter is writing, his whole letter is coming about at the height of the Roman Empire's power. And it was a truly wicked kingdom. And the one on the throne of Rome when he wrote this was a guy called Nero. Have you heard of him? He was an insane emperor. Most historians concur, most of them agree, that soon after the writing of this letter, when Peter wrote this, Nero sets fire, or he has fire set to the city of Rome, and he's dancing in joy. You've heard the phrase, the fiddles were playing while Rome burned. Nero was up in his palatial estate, watching the fire spread, dancing in glee. He was insane. He wanted to redo Rome, and he wanted to disempower the Senate. But he diverted the blame to the Christians. You know why? Rome, the city, was divided into precincts. We've got the West Ward, we've got South Side Easton, we've got College Hill, we've got downtown. Listen, they had precincts in Rome too, and the Christians almost majoritively, almost totally lived in one of the precincts, and the fire never touched their precinct. So Nero said, see, the Christians started this. He diverted the blame to them. He began to round Christians up. This is shortly after Peter wrote this. He rounded Christians up. He executed them. You know how he executed them? He put them up on poles in his garden during his evening, nighttime garden parties, and he crucified them and set them on fire to be torches to his festivities. That's true fact. He, he eventually captures Peter. And he puts him in stocks for a while, and then he has him led out to a cross, a tree, where he crucified him, tradition says, at Peter's request, upside down. He didn't want to die in the same way that Jesus did. But this is what's happening in Rome. Persecution is escalating, persecution is ramping up, and Peter is preparing the church for it. So what did Peter do? that deserved this kind of suffering? What did these Christian slaves do that deserved this unjust suffering? See, there's a suffering that comes to us that is not fair, and when you suffer unfairly or unjustly, it actually increases the pain. It brings a mental and emotional anguish to suffering. But there is one who has suffered 
more than all others, who was completely innocent. His name is Jesus. Tim Keller once again says, Jesus is the ultimate Job. He's the only truly innocent sufferer. Now listen, I am absolutely convinced, Christian brother and sister, that if we live long enough, we're going to begin experiencing this more and more. I don't know how you can see what's happening in our country and around the world and not end in that same conclusion. And one of the things that we're doing with this sermon is helping to prepare us. Listen, there is suffering that is unjust. You sometimes might lose your job because you have a Christian witness. That's unjust suffering. You might lose your marriage because you're a living fleshed out incarnated example of christ you might actually harden your spouse's heart that way and they leave you that's unjust suffering and we can look to the example peter writes of jesus we can be mindful of god look what he says for this is a gracious thing when mindful of god when you look to god when you look to the example of christ you could draw strength to endure suffering but let me give you point number two suffering has purpose charles spurgeon once said i am certain that i never did grow in grace one half so much anywhere as i have upon the bed of pain now there's some here who who understand this experientially seems like suffering is ongoing it certainly was for spurgeon he suffered extremely from gout and extremely from depression and suffering is not always fair we don't ask for it which is why we need to know it's got a purpose now look at your text again verse 20 for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure but if when you do good and suffer for it you endure this is a gracious thing in the sight of god when you are experiencing unjust suffering and you endure it god finds it beautiful for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now these are slaves that he's writing to. They're Christians. They're slaves that have come to be, believe in Jesus Christ. And they're being mistreated. Take notice of the word for. Look at the verse 20. This is how you find context. You find the stream. Look at verse 20. Look at verse 21. They both begin with the word for in the English Standard Version. That means they're connecting Peter's thoughts. These are connecting thoughts. We are to endure sorrows while suffering unjustly that was verse 19 why that we might verse 21 follow in his steps this is all connected we've got to follow in christ's steps so you endure sorrows when you're suffering unjustly in other words when you suffer for doing good for keeping our conduct among the gentiles honorable go way back to verse 12 and you'll see that and we endure that well but listen we're following the example of christ See, Peter's goal is to help Christians endure suffering, and it's escalating, it's getting worse, and I think it's going to get worse in America. 
And we are to focus on the example of Christ. We are to entrust ourselves, look what he writes, to him who judges justly. You know what that word entrusting means? Now, if I were you, I would underline that word in your text, and I would write a line, I would draw a line to the margin, and I would write these two definitions. It means to commit or hand over. And, and I would write this in, it's in a Greek tense. This is important. You won't get this in your English, in your English versions. It's in a Greek tense for repeated past action. In other words, now listen, you got to hear this. Every new way that Jesus was mistreated in, on earth, he kept handing himself over to his father for safekeeping. He even did this on the cross Father, the final thing he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's entrusting. That's what it looks like. My weakness. Now, this is Johnny Erickson Tata. She was at 17 years old, a uh, promising, beautiful young lady. She dove into a lake, went down, hit her head on a stump that was submerged at the bottom and laid there and was rest, brought back to life because she drowned and was finally uh, put into the hospital and she's been a quadriplegic since. Can't move anything from her neck down. And she writes, my weakness, that is my quadriplegia, is my greatest asset because it forces me into the arms of Christ every single morning when I get up. Now, how do you like that view for suffering? Does she deserve this? Is this unfair? The answer is yes. But God had a plan for it, and she's been living out what Peter has been writing, entrusting yourself to him who judges justly. Listen, you defend your Christian morals at work, you might get fired. How, what do you do? You entrust yourself into God's hands. You love your children. You raise them up in the nurture of the Lord, and they might leave the faith. What do you do? You continue to entrust your children into the hands of the Lord. There is a constant, repeated work of handing your life over to God because he judges justly now what he's saying is this what peter's saying is this every time we suffer christian brothers and sisters we must learn to follow the example of christ we must learn to hand ourselves back over to god commit yourself to him give him your life god you know the pain i'm in you know how difficult this is i'm going to give it to you into your hands i will commit my spirit that's how you handle suffering keller once again says suffering is unbearable if you aren't certain that god is for you and with you and then peter strengthens this if you're suffering well listen look what he says focus on verse 24 he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree and this is where we begin to approach the verse that's been twisted. And we're going to straighten it out. Let me give you point number three, and we're really going to dig into the theology. I think you're going to get it, so don't worry about it. But this can change your life. This can transform you. A brand new way to live, Christian brother and sister. I'm, I'm telling you, this is powerful. Not my sermon, the word of God. Let me give you point number three. Suffering points to a radical problem. Sin. 
Suffering points to a radical problem, sin. Now, I want you to hear this carefully. The problem in suffering, in every bit of suffering, is sin. Now watch, listen, look at me. Am I saying that every time we suffer, we committed a sin, and this is God's deterministic payback? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the root of it began in the Garden of Eden with, with Adam and Eve. We tend to define sin, however, very superficially. Here's how we define sin. Now, now listen, see if you do this. Sin is morally wrong behavior that breaks God's commands. And if that's the way you, you define sin, you're, you've, you're getting it, you're, you're fairly close to it, you're just up on the surface, you're snorkeling, and the gospel, the word of God, puts scuba tanks on you and makes you dive down to the roots of the sin. So the roots of sin is that we've got a heart full of desires and demands and selfishness, and we are at war with God. Every single sin is cosmic treason against God. I would write that in your Bibles. Everyone. It was Cornelius Platinga in his incredible book that taught me that every sin has a vertical Godward force. Every sin goes against God. There, you'll never ever commit a sin that is just between you and other people. So that David could even say, when he had adultery with Bathsheba and killed her husband Uriah, that he could say in his confessional Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned. He's not saying I didn't sin against Bathsheba or that I didn't sin against Uriah. What he's saying is that his sin against God was so terrible that it dwarfs all other directions of sin. Every sin is cosmic treason. Now listen to this from President Obama in his Democratic National Convention speech. Our power doesn't come from some, some self-declared savior promising that he alone can restore order as long as we do things his way. Now, of course, he's speaking about Trump. But I kind of wonder if there's a deeper message that maybe he's not even aware of. We don't look to be ruled. This is cosmic treason when you see it at the heart level. We don't want God to rule over us. We don't want Christ to be the only Savior. We'd like to have our own saviors. We like winds of doctrine that bring us around the authoritative word of God and give us another way. He goes on. Our power comes from those immortal declarations first put to paper right here in Philadelphia all those years ago. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that we, that we the people can form a more perfect union. That's who we are. That's our birthright, the capacity to shape our own destiny. Listen, if I was quoting Trump, I could tell you the same thing, or Hillary, and that is they are godless people. There is no Godward force in their theology. They don't even, I don't even know if they have a theology. This is humanism on stage at the most powerful country in the world. See, God cannot just shrug off our sin. 
He will never ever turn a blind eye to our sin. He has to judge it. Listen, if God does not judge every single sin, and there are greater sins and there are lesser sins, if he doesn't judge every single sin, then he could not be just and he could not be holy. There is no way. If Jesus did not die on the cross in our place, then we've got to die for our own sins. We've got to be judged. Somebody's got to die. Because judgment is coming. God cannot not judge sin. See, this is liberalism that says, I am tired, as one woman said up in Minnesota at a theology conference, I am tired of seeing the bloody Christ on the cross. Let's get him off of it and get rid of the blood. And what she's saying is, she doesn't know it, if you take Christ off the cross, there is no remission of sins. You're still in your sin, and lady, you're going to be judged for it. She just doesn't understand that. God said to Adam, the day you eat of that forbidden fruit, you will die. It will be the penalty for your sin. Why? Well, Romans 6, 23, it's not because the fruit was toxic, but that his innocence would be shattered. Either your sin is on you and you bear the penalty, my friend, or it is on Christ who bore the penalty. It's going to be on somebody. And this is what Peter helps us see. Look at verse 24. He himself, that's Jesus, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why does he say himself? It, you know, it really doesn't need to be there grammatically. It could just say he bore our sins. Why does it say himself? Now listen, when you read the Bible, do you stop and ponder these things? Well, grammatically, it works without the word. So why did Peter put the word in? Well, he puts the word in because Christ is the only one who has ever lived without sin. He's, he's the only human being that's ever lived and not committed sin, not had a heart full of desires and demands to be in cosmic treason against his father. He's the only one that is pure, the spotless lamb of God. He's the only one fit to take away our sins. And the moment, listen, the moment you turn in faith to Jesus, you are delivered from the penalty of your sins. You may have done some horribly heinous things in your life, but you can have this peace. The moment you turn to him, God takes those sins and judges the son, the sin bearer, and puts him to death on the cross. His wrath comes upon his son, and you whose sins have been transferred to the son now have the very righteousness of Christ you are justified before him all the sins you've created in the past all the, the morally wrong deeds that you and I have done all of that cosmic treason it's been put on Christ you are new before God this is good news and Peter reflects on three great truths we gain from the cross of Christ and this is going to Head us on out to the rest of this message. Here's three great truths. Let me give you the first one. Now listen, this is life-changing. If you will grab hold of it and anchor it into your faith. The first one is this. The cross is God's means to deliver us from the penalty. But don't stop there. Too many Christians stop there. And power of sin. Listen, it's the power of sin and the penalty of sin 
Christ is the means on the cross to deliver us from both. Look what he writes. Look at what Peter writes. That we might die to sin. What does that mean? That we might die to sin. When Christ died on the cross, he secured for us not only the release from the guilt and the penalty of our sin, he released us from the bondage and the power of that sin. Here's how it works. I'm going to give you an example from the, no, no, the Napoleonic Wars. Ready? Listen to this. Is this true? During those wars, men were conscripted, drafted into the French army by a lottery system. Did you know that? This is pretty interesting. I grew up as a little boy, deathly afraid that Reagan was going to institute the, the lottery. Always afraid of it. When this was happening in the Napoleonic Wars, if your name was drawn, you had to go off to battle. But in the rare case that you could get somebody else to take your place, you were exempt. On one occasion, the authorities came to a man because he had been conscripted, drafted, but the man refused to go. He, he said, quote, I was killed two years ago. And at first they questioned his sanity, of course, but he insisted that this was the case. He claimed that the records would show that he had been conscripted two years previously by a close friend who was not married. In other words, he was, conscript, he was drafted, but he had a close friend, had no, no wife, no children, really no dependents, and his friend says, I will take your place. He took the place of that man who was drafted, went to war, and he was killed in battle. So they checked the records, and the man was correct. So they referred the case to Napoleon himself, Napoleon's answer was that the country had no legal claim on that man. He was free because another man had died in his place. True story. That's what it means to be dead to sin. It ha sin has no legal authority over you, Christian. Sin has no legal power over you. The only bondage that you are ever going to be in to sin again is your own voluntary stepping into a prison. Because you've been free. You've been set free through Christ. The Christian is a holy one, a saint, all evidence to the contrary thrown out. The ledger is clean. This is why Jesus died on the cross, that we might die to sin. But that's only point number one. Point number two. The cross is God's means to give us the power to live right. You know, I'm going to ask you to do something. This is, I, I'm pretty sure, at least I don't remember ever asking you to do this before. I think I would rarely ask you to do this. I think you know by now that when we preach, we give you so much. You're, you're spiritually walk out of here so full. I mean, I think it's not, I know it's not because of preaching prowess or preaching ability. It's just the word of God. It fills you up. You're not going to walk out of here hungry spiritually. I don't think ever. But what can happen, and I hear this all the time, we give you so much that there's no way to absorb it all. Well, listen, we're, we're trying to create a buffet setting for you. Do you understand that? We don't want to give you a high-dollar cuisine plate where the portions are small. We want to give you the entire buffet, and you're, there's no way you can eat it all. No way. We want you back. 
over and over. I'm going to encourage you, download our Cornerstone PA app. These sermons are always put up by Tuesdays. Listen to this one again. If you don't want to take the time to listen to it, go to our website, download my notes. I almost preach word for word from my notes. Go off it a little bit. You're going to not digest this sermon in one sitting. There's no way. But I'm telling you, if you will grab hold of these truths by faith, they're going to transform your life. You will not struggle with shame. You will not struggle with addiction. You will know the way out. Get back to this sermon again. That Number two, the cross is God's means to give us the power to live right. God, through Jesus, did not just take the penalty and power of sin away from the Christian. He also gave to his child a new heart filled with right desires. Look what Peter writes, verse 24. Look at the next phrase. And live to righteousness. What does that mean? That you are dead to sin and alive to righteousness? What does that mean? Paul said it with more words in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Christian, we have been set free from the penalty and the power of sin, but we've also been given the power to live pleasing to God, to live for his will and not ours. We read it with the worship team today in Hebrews chapter uh, 12 or 13. That, listen, God will give you all the, the power. He will equip you with everything you need in order to do his will. It's not a, it's, see, this is where Christians short-circuit. I deal with this constantly as a pastor. You ready? I know I have the potential to overcome that sin. I know there's a possibility that I could grow in Christ. But they stop there at potential and possibility. This is not a potential and a possibility. It is a reality. It is a guarantee to live for righteousness. This is what the entire power of the Spirit of God that dwells in you, Christian, is doing in you so that you can live for righteousness. When you walk with the Spirit of God, you keep step with Him. He's going to produce in you what righteousness looks like. Righteousness is just right living. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, knowledge self-control these are all the things that the spirit of god is producing in you peter says you've got the divine power of god in you that's a promise that's a guarantee but there is one more truth and now we're going to arrive at our twisted verse can't get there unless you get through the rest. Listen, if you open up your Bible to verse 24 and you don't know what's going on in verses 18 through the rest of them, you're not going to understand what this twisted verse, why it's so twisted. Here's what he says. The cross is, here's what I'm saying. The, the cross is God's means to heal us. The cross is God's means to heal us. Look at what he says in verse 24. By his wounds you have been healed healed and there are preachers and there are writers and there are books on the shelves of hackman's and christian book distributors they're going to tell you that this includes a guarantee of physical healing if you have enough faith 
Fat Kenneth Copeland says this, Every sin, sickness, disease, sorrow, and grief was laid on Jesus so that I could be free from them. Therefore, today I am forgiven, healed, healthy, and well. I live in divine health. Which was interesting when he couldn't make an Australian conference because he threw his back out. See, all these word of faith preachers who preach this, that the healing is a guarantee from God for health and wellness, every one of them gets sick. They just hide it. And a lot of them die from cancer and heart disease. Get on the internet and read them. Johnny Erickson, well, she doesn't, she doesn't agree with Copeland. She writes, he has chosen not to heal me. She's quadriplegic. She's, he's chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. All right, let's dig into it a little bit. By his wounds, you have been healed. What does wounds mean? Already starting number one, underline it, put it in your margin. This is singular in the Greek. This is not plural. It is singular. By his wound, you have been healed. And it's not just, we know normally the King James, by his stripes, which points your mind to the scourging or the flogging. That's not what this means. It's not the flogging alone that Christ received from the Roman guard that is the wound. It's the total execution process. It was the flogging, the thirst, the thorns, the blood loss, the exhaustion, the nails through his wrists and feet, the agony, the sleeplessness, the grief, the hunger, the ex all, all of these things. All of that suffering that brought Jesus' death is the wound. By his wound, by his death, you have been healed. But the word wound is figurative. It's metaphorical. Here's what it is. Now, this is absolutely gargantuanly important. The wound is figurative of the stroke of divine judgment, the wrath of God laid on his son because our sins were put on him. So the wound it brings in not only the emotional and the mental and the physical suffering that led to his death, but the wrath of God, his Father. And it was laid on Jesus instead of us. The wound, look what it says again, what, look what Peter says. He's quoting Isaiah, he just changes one pronoun. Isaiah says, by his wounds we have been healed. Peter changes it, one pronoun, you. What does healed mean? Well, it is often in the Bible used for physical healing. But the majority of times in the scripture that you get this word healed, it's not physical, it's spiritual. In fact, Isaiah 6.10 writes, make, make the heart of his people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be, here it is, healed. The word healed is, is used often for spiritual blindness, to be having your eyes open spiritually. See, that blindness, now listen, you got to get this, because now I'm going to bring in verse 25 to prove to you the context of what healed is. 
The blindness led Israel to reject Jesus, and this is the healing that Peter refers to in verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, Jews and Gentiles, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, or shepherd and guardian of the people. See, it's from the cross that are straying, faithless, self-centered, blinded selves are changed so that we can and that we want to follow our shepherd. This is all of what this passage is talking about. The death of Jesus opens our eyes so that we come back to the Father through Jesus and are saved and stay saved. Listen, I can bear witness to the power of God today to heal physical illnesses and diseases. I will never forget being called to the hospital of a two-year-old boy that was dying. The doctors in Easton Hospital, the doctors said, we don't know what's wrong with him. We're doing everything we know to do and there's nothing left to do. We need to just call in your family. They called me. They weren't even from our church. Somebody who knew them from our church said, can you go pray for them? I went over there and I prayed for them. I was not allowed in the room. I asked the parents to come out, Jay and Terry, Phil. I never met them before in my life. I said, I'm the pastor at Cornerstone. Can I just pray? We heard about this and we want to pray for you. I just simply prayed for God's mercy Within hours, the boy's life began to turn around. He began to get well again. And within a day or two, he came out of the hospital. He became one of my son Aaron's best friends. Do I have the gift of healing? I'm going to tell you no, because I prayed for a lot of people to be healed, and they weren't. I don't have some divine gift of healing. I just know the great physician, and you do too. So God heals today when he wills it. But is this a guarantee that because of the atonement in the cross of Christ, is this a guarantee that God will always heal if you have enough faith? I can tell you Wednesday night I got a head cold and I prayed, Lord, would you just take this away? And he didn't. But his grace is sufficient in weakness. Verse 24, friends, is not a promise that God will always heal physically. Suffering has a purpose. It moves us to Christ. It shows the world Christ. We follow the example of Christ. We entrust ourselves over to Christ. It keeps us at the cross where our sins were put to death and we were given power to live right, and where we are kept from straying back to our selfish ways. There is value in suffering. Johnny Erickson said it this way, my wheelchair was the key to seeing all this happen, especially since God's power always shows up best in weakness. So here I sit, glad, can you believe she says this? Glad that I, had not, that I have not been healed on the outside, but glad that I've been healed on the inside, healed from my own self-centered wants and wishes. That's the guarantee, that's the promise of 1 Peter 2, 24. And one day, Johnny Erickson Tata will run, run through fields of glory, but this day, she's still alive, her suffering is the means to keep her at the cross, where she has died to sins, was made alive to righteousness, and kept from straying by her shepherd and her guardian. And that is Peter's great lesson. By his wounds, you have been healed.
Amen.